This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Making Being Hunted Fun. Ooze Horror. Good Bad Food. And John Humphrey Noise. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the Island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features five original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to your existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots to bend your players' heads. Escape a labyrinthine airport. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Explore the place you only think think you remember in Welcome to the Island. Available October 15th from your friendly local game store. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But What's this? That's not a graph paper dungeon. That's a topo layout of the island. And that's not Peter Frampton. That's the hideous General Zaroff. Robin, we're not in the gaming hut. We're in the most dangerous gaming hut. Because today we're talking about being hunted. A common enough experience in thrillers, but a less than exciting experience in many cases. And Robin, we are here to fix that. We are here to make the hunt indeed game as well as most. Right. Um, and so uh, I'm going to throw this back to you pretty quick because you designed a whole game about making I being did. hunted fun. But first, the thing to do, uh, if you are thinking of adding a hunt or pursuit uh, sequence where the, the PCs are the pursuit into uh, your uh, regular game, where that is not just part of the buy-in that you're uh, playing something like The Fugitive or, or like like Night's Black Agents, stop and think about the uh, players in your group and... Uh, how many of them will actually uh, dig this? Because uh, if you have a group where the people like to very methodically talk over their every possible choice before doing something, or one in which players get discouraged easily and sit there thinking up punishing obstacles that you had not even ever conceived for them, uh, you may want to either reconsider whether that's something that they're going to dig at all, or sit them down at the top of the thing and say, we're doing a chase thriller tonight and give them a, a review of how uh, the characters in these uh, movies in particular uh, manage to prosper and survive and what they do and, and how they go about uh, being chased in a way that is uh, fun and exciting. Uh, and so uh, I think I've now led to the point, Ken, where you're going to enumerate uh, some of those things. Right. The I mean, the simplest way to do it is to if the players are so lost to reason as to have not seen uh, the first Bourne movie uh, or any of the Bourne movies, say, let's watch the Bourne movies. And then at the end, they should at least have an idea of the sort of fun things you can do if you're being chased by bad guys. And uh, one of the things that the Bourne movies teach you as the GM and taught me as the game designer is that being chased is not enough, that it is not just a 
we have to stay out of the reach of the bad guys over and over and over. The players also have to have, the heroes also have to have, an objective that they're trying to get to. So Bourne is trying to solve the mystery of his creation or um, uh, solve the mystery of... Uh, of um, uh, his girlfriend's death or solve the mystery of where is the place that I can go where I can whack the guy that finally uh, that, that set me up so I can finally end this nonsense. A uh, chase is the other half of a quest in, in these movies. And that is what makes it more exciting. So if the players are going to be hunted by monsters or by necromancers or by vampires, then they at the very least are hunting for themselves for a way to uh, kill those monsters or those necromancers or those vampires. Um, so they're trying to get to the sword of Welleran before the necromancer can, can kill them. They're trying to find the place that the vampire Lords all sleep so they can stake them. Uh, they're trying to um, uh, get uh, at the very least out of monster town before the monsters can attack. A lot of the shadow over Innsmouth. They have to find the railway cut that leads them out of town and, and that is the uh, the source. And that leads us to the question of, are we doing a tactical hunt? Is it just a, a, a one adventure or a, a very few adventures put together? Or is it a campaign? Is the whole campaign defined by them being chased by terrifying foes? And in a thriller campaign, that is usually what makes it thrilling is the fact that terrifying foes are chasing you. In a uh, more standard F20 campaign, it's less likely that you begin... You know, step one, Nazgul start chasing you. Step last, Nazgul are still chasing you. Even in Lord of the Rings, the Nazgul only sort of chase them off and on at some points in their quest. And, and a lot of times they're just free to uh, goof around or be attacked by orcs or whatever else might happen. Right. Uh, st structurally, the, the Nazgul basically, it's a wandering monster, except whenever drama calls for a wandering monster... Uh, it happens to be the Nazgul, right? It's a wandering monster table where it's uh, you roll a d6, and one to six is Nazgul. Right, is 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 you're just rolling the number of Nazgul that show up. Yes, and and I think it's uh, instructive to stick with uh, let's say F20 for the moment because our answer to how do you do a successful chase thriller in a, a modern day a game or even maybe a futuristic one is buy Knights Black Agents and <laughs> yes. change it a bit if you need to. Often in a fantasy game, though, the reason a pursuit occurs is not that the DM has very carefully uh, set up a campaign around it, but rather uh, one of the players, uh, perhaps the one who gets bored when there's too much talking, uh, decides, to, well, why don't we just go and take an axe and kill the king? That will solve the problem. And suddenly places you uh, in a situation where uh, you either have to find a way for him not to kill the king, but depending on the rule set you're using, like, for example, uh, the F20 rules, you as DM don't always have 100% uh, control over how things are going to come out. Uh, the more loosey-goosey the rule system, the more you can sort of keep it within the realm of the uh, believable narrative that everybody else signed on to. But uh, let's say the king lies dead. All of a sudden, you've got to do something. How do you uh, then turn that uh, into it, it in the world uh, you've set up. Uh, obviously, people get mad at you when you kill kings. That's uh, that's a pretty consistent thing. They don't yep. want to let that uh, happen. Uh, at the very least, all the other kings don't like it. Even if even if the um, uh, the the guy wanted you to kill the king, quite often he needs to sort of tidy up some loose ends so that people don't get the idea you can just do it at random. Yes, exactly. So so uh, you as DM are suddenly 
this situation has been uh, has arisen emergently, shall we say? <laughs> and uh, you now have to make that chase interesting. How do you then, uh, on the fly, come up with what the other goal is, other than just uh, being uh, getting away in the moment? How do you build in the well? Clearly, we've got to go and do this. How do you introduce that? What do you, how do you uh, dream it up and uh, and how do you implement it? Well, I mean, dreaming it up is is generally, I mean, sometimes you're, the players will be good and they will say, oh, if we can just um, uh, get to the dimensional gate, we can get out of this stupid kingdom. And then that's great. Now you have a thing and you can start putting obstacles and you can do whatever it is. Sometimes the players are legitimately confounded and you can either call for a a role uh, for area knowledge or whatever the politics and um oh if we got to the the castle of um uh, lord uh, barrington lord barrington has hated these guys forever he'll give a sanctuary even if we did kill the king um and then so you could say great now now we have a goal and you can salt in a place that you have wanted them to go anyway that you already have prepared if that's the kind of game you're running, or you can just let the players riff on it and then figure that you're handling the chase, let them handle the quest, um, which is uh, good if you've got the kind of players you can turn over that kind of co-creation to. So the, I guess the other final possibility is either the players come up with it or you come up with it and you say either because there's an old man in a tavern or of psychic vision or the, they pray to the gods or, or whatever. Um, you know, St. Cuthbert appears to them and says, if you can find the gem of justice, then you will be able to demonstrate that he was an evil king and uh, they'll have to let you go. And so that will be, you know, a standard sort of a fantasy quest item. It's just made more exciting by the fact that every man's hand is turned against you and all the werebears as well. Right. And so uh, that technique, I think, also answers my next question to a sense, which is, what do you do when the players become disheartened by the size and power of the forces arrayed against them, that they begin to lose heart. And I guess one way to do that is just to go around the table and go, well, you know, uh, yes, of course, the king's guard uh, is very large and efficient and has uh, many uh, doughty warriors and, uh, oh, look, D6 Nazgul as well. But uh, what do you know about them that is the thing that will allow you to move on to the next step? And so uh, rather than sit there and think what they can't do, uh, if the thing is to get them to start suggesting the things that they can do. And so uh, that uh, one person might say, oh, well, uh, yes, the, the King's Guard is very, uh, um, very powerful, but I happen to know uh, uh, one of them. Actually, my father saved his life. And if we could just get to talk to him, uh, he may uh, be able to take mercy on us. Or uh, someone else might say, well, uh, the King's Guard, I just happen to know that there's an invisibility ring that's tuned especially against uh, law enforcement officers. Uh, and so why don't we go and get that? So whether that is the ultimate quest or a uh, step along the way to the ultimate goal of the quest, both of those things are instances of taking uh, your uh, players getting discouraged and inviting them to engage your imagination in ways that suggest uh, what they could do. And they, uh, I think people's answers, uh, when they're just sort of thinking about what uh, is arrayed against them, they're often thinking, realistically, there'd never be anybody in the King's Guard uh, that would uh, uh, let us slip through. And uh, of course, there's no such magic. That would, but if, as soon as you uh, turn that around and say, uh, 
think of six things. One of them, one of the things they think of is one that they will be more interested in than the other. And so rather than you as GM having to convince them that they have a shot because, gosh darn it, they're in a genre story, mm -hmm. uh, they can start to play in a more concrete way with that, even if normally that's not how they think. I mean, but if you do have players who are worried that killing the king will uh, unleash the uh, full majesty of the court, those are good players. You should cherish them. Don't yes. encourage players to kill kings. Right. Um, that that unless, is before the king is killed. Right. <laughs> unless you're playing the, the king-killing game, which is uh, obviously great fun. Um, the, I guess the other possible thing is that you can take a uh, a moment from the player's inspiration because where they run to begins to dictate to you, the GM, the kind of story they want. And obviously what they may try to do is turtle and you should discourage that story regardless because turtling, as you may have noticed, is not actually a story, but you can, once they've turtled, for example, that gives you a, a chance to give a little personality to the foes and say, Oh, the, the great anti paladin tracker has been called out of retirement to hunt you down. And now he's a, a force at court, uh, because you've, you've hidden so well. And so now uh, this anti paladin is out tracking you with his team of, of trained boulettes who are going to dig through the ground until they find you. And you're like, Oh, wow. That was that. And, and now you've got a very cool and impressive villain. And so they're not. Uh, that, that's one of the things that a thriller always has is a, is a good bad guy. But in a uh, D and D game, it can be hard to present that bad guy, certainly on stage without the players just killing him and ending it. But if you can have, you know, word get back to them in their, in their briefly uh, suitable turtle up that this is what's happened, then they can sort of give a personality to this and, and put a face on that bad guy. And that will make the thriller more exciting than just, uh, one die six Nazgul, uh, two die 20, uh, Royal Guards, and nope, I'm sorry, four die 40 Royal Guards, you know, whatever. That, that gets old, but if they are thinking, oh, once more, um, uh, uh, Rebenfeld, the, um, uh, the, the anti-paladin is after us. Ooh, he's so, he's so wily and his, and his hated, uh, bullets digging through the ground. Then that gives you a, a, a sort of a, a face that you can put on the bad guys, which is more fun. Right. And, uh, an important distinction is between refuge, uh, which in a chase thriller, there's always a point where the uh, characters get to hunker down for a little bit uh, and turtling uh, so that uh, going and seeking a safe house or going to your, uh, you know, your hideout in the woods or finding the, uh, uh, you know, the dungeon that you uh, formerly uh, explored and going and sitting in a room there. Uh, if you as DM frame that as, well, you know, that's not you, you'll maybe gain 12 hours before they find you or whatever it is that you set up the expectation ahead of time that they, that the refuge is just that it's a temporary thing. And then they get some benefit from being in the refuge. Uh, they get, uh, as players, they uh, get a, a chance to sort of stop and think and plan. Uh, but you, it's sort of baked into your description of it that, you know, but you know, 12 hours later, the centipedes from the bottom of the dungeon are going to smell you and come up or, uh, you know, you know that, uh, eventually the anti-paladin is going to pick up your trail and you'd better get out of here before uh, he arrives or otherwise he's not just going to kill you. He's going to kill your friends who are giving you shelter so that you built into the description of that, the uh, implicit or I guess explicit uh, warning <laughs> that it's, it's not a turtle zone. It's just a, a temporary stop along the way. And uh, one of the things that uh, people always face in a thriller is the clock. And the clock is telling us to run away from this segment and see what lurks, perhaps oozing, on the other side. 
You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires. And got burned. You're all alone against them. One player. One game master. Create your own agent, or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules, designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan, or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. It's once more time to enter that most terrifying hut, the horror hut. And this time around, the hut is terrifying indeed because something is leaking through the window. Something green is coming up from under the door. Oh no, Ken, we are faced with ooze. Not faced with ooze. At least the ooze doesn't have faces, except for when it does. Dun, when dun, it dun. does, it, that, I wouldn't trust that ooze one bit. Uh, so I happen to notice uh, among the uh, horror titles that I took in at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival, which we discussed last week, uh, there was a, a mini ooze theme uh, running along there. There was an aspect of that in a, a not recommended uh, Turkish film called The Antenna and a recommended uh, one called Sea Fever uh, by an Irish director, and also The Color Out of Space has uh, mm-hmm. some some ooze in it, as you would expect, and that got me thinking of the uh, the horror genre of the the substance, the terrifying uh, glorping thing that uh, that comes your way, uh, and uh, and examine uh, what makes that uh, interesting, what makes that resonant, and uh, finally how to start to implement. Uh, an ooze-based uh, horror into your games. Obviously, the F-20 world, uh, the ooze is a basic low-level foe where you fight a bunch of fungus or, you know, animated gloop on the floor. Uh, but that's uh might be gooey, but it's not necessarily terrifying. Whereas, uh, Ken, what is frightening? What is the thing that, uh, what what is the primal fear that is being uh, worked on us uh, when we uh, uh, watch or read an ooze horror tale. I think that the big thing that's going on with the ooze is the uh, fear of loss of invid- individuality, that not just our humanity is going to go away. We're not going to just turn into zombies, but our individuality, everything that makes us us is just going to get slurped up into some amorphous blob. And uh, that is... Uh, sort of the, the, I mean, there's, there's probably a degree that goes back to, you know, your, if you were going to be a Freudian about it, you know, your, your infant uh, object permanency fear that, you know, oh my golly, the, the doll is gone and now it's never coming back. And so if the, you can see sort of the notion that there is no object permanency symbolized by the fact that there's this immense, uh, goop, uh, that is slurping up everything and, and destroying it, that will sort of, maybe trigger some of that. But I think that the biggest, the, the thing that you're worried about when the Shoggoth or the blob or the titular stuff are, is, is coming after you is that, uh, you are going to be, uh, uh, glorped up in it. And, you know, you may be specifically worried about acid because it's like a green slime from D and D, or you may just be worried about being folded up in its, in its, uh, gummage and, and, and made into one of its many titl- uh, titterating voices. Like if it's a Shoggoth, uh, I think that the loss of individuality that was the core terror that we're talking about, and that, and of course, the, you know, nothing can stop it. 
which is just a good standard thing for monsters to have anyway. Yes, and and the slow inexorability is also an important factor that it's coming at you, but you can't you can't halt it because it oozes in and around and and through things, and in that way, it is a version of the thing that animates almost all horror, which is the fear of death. But in this instance, it's you know the slow inevitability of of death, and so you can look at it as. Uh, an example, a, a metaphor for the slow encroach of entropy and decay and disease that will eventually claim uh, uh, almost all of us. And I think that is also what gives it its political dimension in that people who want to explore a slow acting but uh, unpreventable uh, political phenomenon, as in the antenna or as in much more successfully Larry Cohen's The Stuff, where it is also a, uh, a parody of consumerism, that there's this thing for you that is completely harmful and will destroy you. But nonetheless, the power of marketing and a del delicious taste uh, makes you uh, seek out the ooze. The blob earlier on is also uh, taking all of these things and, and bolting just the fear of invasion uh, that mm -hmm. is part of that whole 50s monster cycle. And so uh, something coming from outer space to eat you that you can't deal with or that uh, that triggers also hubris. This is another thing about blobs is that some people are always tempted to reach out and touch the blob and they shouldn't do that as no. they learn. So uh, that's another classic thing in, in horror where uh, it that gets back into the whole you shouldn't investigate things, you shouldn't try to learn, especially don't learn by touching things, not even with a stick. Yeah, no, the, the, it, it is a very direct, uh, you know, sort of Faustian moment where knowledge is fatal. Um, so what are the <laughs> earliest uh, uh, blobs or, or oozes in horror fiction? Are they the shockets or is there something that predates them? It depends on how you define exactly an ooze. I think a lot of people go back to the great uh, William Hope Hodgson story, The Voice in the Night, which is about a predatory fungus that takes people over and um, uh, that they, they still have their voices and whatnot. Hence the voice in the night. It's not a full on all enveloping goo like a Shoggoth is, but it's very much part of that infection horror. Uh, and also the sort of, you know, you're, you're covered with fungus, your outlines are getting soft and crumbly. And so that, that has a, a quality to it. Um, the Shoggoths are certainly very early in terms of famous monsters that are also oozes. And then there's a sort of a ongoing thing, I think in parallel with uh, things like the blob that came out of sort of various giant space amoebas, which are mostly science fiction-y things. Um, and according to uh, some people, the guys who made up the blob uh, took it from the phenomenon of star jelly, which is sort of this, well, it, it's ooze, I guess, that shows up all over uh, grass and trees and in, in some cases, and people think, oh, it must have fallen like dew out of the sky and hence the name star jelly. Um, fun fact, by the way, um, uh, star jelly has, uh, been referred to, uh, in the medieval times as Ash Shuhub, which is the Arabic word for comets. And the notion is that comets get down to the earth and then bits of them fall off and become star jelly, which is very Lovecraftian. In addition, it's called Ashuhub. So we are one half of the way to Shuhub Nigurath right there. So that's fun. Um, and then there's also, I think if you do any caving, there's a lot of sort of 
uh, gooey, oozy, acidy bits of the rock that you need to stay away from. And so maybe so some of that is, is drawn into the, the, the etiology of it as well. Um, I haven't found anything earlier than, um, uh, than Voice in the Night, which is from 1908, but I am moderately sure that if I were to bang at it a little more, there'd be some sort of, uh, Victorian gorp that shows up. Probably out of a lesser-known H.G. Wells story. Well, I guess when Arc Dream uh, gets you to do the annotated history of ooze. Exactly. Uh, you'll the, be the, on The that. big book of ooze. So the question uh, that presents us as horror GMs, then, is the ooze uh, is interesting because it is an impersonal threat. It is terrifying because it is... Uh, literally uh, difficult to touch and get your uh, arms around or not, perhaps not difficult, but uh, extremely unwise. Unwise. Uh, yeah. But how do we turn this into something that works as the centerpiece of uh, a, a horror scenario rather than just a glorpy creature that you fight as you would fight a, a black pudding or a, a gorp in uh, RuneQuest? Well, the, the trouble being that to be horrific at a base level, it has to be threatening something that you care about. And that either means it has to be threatening NPCs that you have come to know and love, or at least that you're willing to pretend you care about for the purposes of the story, which is why a lot of times NPCs in these are are fairly uh, finely drawn characters, or um, it has to be coming after the player characters themselves because they're the only people they care about being sociopaths. So I think that the way to do it is to begin with the puzzle and the solution, oh my God, it's an ooze, is the moment at which it begins to eat the first sympathetic NPC. And then it be, it, it's going to turn into, I think, a, you know, fight it like you would a black pudding moment because that's what the stories are. Unless you've, are playing in a, in the sort of game where a, not even a heroic death, just a, a, a forgotten death is part of the expectation, which implies a one shot, right? Right. Um, I guess the other way that the mystery could work is not at the end of the mystery, you find the ooze and fight it, but the ooze, you find it at the beginning of the uh, uh, second act. And then the mystery is how do we come up with a thing that destroys the ooze before it eats the town? Right. And so that's sort of a, you know, a, a science mystery where you see that uh, Professor Philpot. Uh, was working on something that uh, has a correct resonance. And now you have to, uh, oh, no, but he was out in the woods and uh, taking samples of the ooze. So now we've got to find uh, Dr. Philpot or his trailer. or right. And then after that, we have to find the components to set up and uh, hook to the radio antenna on the edge of town. And, and then you could have, uh, you know, the action climax could be climbing up to the top of the uh, the, the radio tower and uh, affixing the uh, gadgets to it in order to create the resonance that will kill the use as it slowly comes toward you. So it has uh, suspense and visual interest without uh, being just a, you know, a, a fight with the one Shoggoth. Because if we know one thing about ooze is that, you know, killing it just turns it into a whole bunch of smaller oozes. And uh, yeah. that's bad. And, and, and the actual, I mean, if you're looking for a structure, the actual structure of the original 1956 or whatever it was, 58 movie, The Blob, is a pretty great structure because uh, you see the meteorite crash, um, which can be, you know, you can ignore that, but you can mention shooting stars or whatever. And uh, Steve McQueen is out looking and people are vanishing. So they don't know where the people are going. They've been eaten by the by the blob, but the blob is moving around. And then 
it, you know, goes through and then there's a big set piece attack where everyone is convinced and that that's your second act turn where you realize, oh my gosh, there's a blob and it's eating people. And then during the attacks, the blob gives off, you know, it, it gives tells that say, oh, it doesn't like cold. And Steve McQueen figures it out. And then they have to run out and rescue all the fire extinguishers from school. So there's a mission in the middle. And then there's a big set piece where they fight it with fire extinguishers and drive it into the freezer or whatever it was. And that's a, and that's a, that's a really well structured story. I mean, there's, there's a reason that it's a timeless classic and it's not just because, uh, young Steve McQueen, a lot of it is because it's just a, a straightforward, well done monster story. And it has a great sense of place that the town is. Yeah. Uh, very well evoked. And so you, you care uh, that people are getting eaten. And it seems uh, the impersonality of the threat is really bright eyed in it because nobody deserves to get eaten by a blob. You know, even right. if you touch the blob with a stick, that's not really your fault. That's naturally what you would do if you saw a big old mm-hmm. blob. So uh, I, I guess that's the other part is that make sure that you uh, draw the place that it's set in in a way that really resonates with the players so that they care about uh, what happens to it. And uh, I think, as I said at the very top of this, there is ooze coming into this hut. And so, Ken, I think it's time for us to get out the liquid nitrogen, freeze the ooze, and then uh, meet up uh, somewhere where we can maybe uh, use the frozen ooze, uh, say, perhaps in uh, food preparation. That'd be fun. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from corrosive ooze by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Luke Steyer, Robert Dean, Chad Ward, Liz and Siski, and Chris Lydon. The whirring of the food processor, the whacketing of the cutting board, the delicious smells drifting down from the range hood welcome us into the food hut where we're doing none of that, Robin. We're opening (laughs) boxes. And we're dumping them out. We may apply heat if we're in that mood, but maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just eat it right out of the box. Because today in the food hut, we're doing sort of a, I don't know, a guilty pleasure food hut. Because, yes, there is guilt, but also, Robin, there's pleasure. Also pleasure. Um, Today we're talking processed foods that are, to anyone's standard, legitimately terrible, but that we would uh, literally fight a man to be allowed to keep eating. Yes, and that man may be the Grim Reaper. (laughs) He may be the Grim Reaper, or he may be a bunch of know-it-alls. We don't know. A bunch of jerks. We don't know. Um, So, yes, of course, the 
the, the, and the reason that uh, terrible food uh, can uh, nonetheless be uh, delicious and uh, something that we love is, is that it's full of fat and sugar and uh, salt. or salt or possibly all three. Possibly uh, all and, the things. Yes. And we've all been trained uh, uh, by uh, the forces of evolution uh, when all of those things were rare instead of abundant to seek out all of those things which we uh, need in uh, limited quantities in our body. But guess what? If there's still more of it, we're going to keep on eating it. And so uh, the first category of terrible processed food that I uh, admit to uh, still being in, in the thrall of is the processed uh, cheese product category, uh, mm. most specifically cheese whiz. Uh, there's... I uh, have to cop to always having cheese whiz in the fridge and not just as a hamburger condiment during... Not just as a hamburger condiment, kids. During uh, hamburger season, but all year round to put on toast. Now, uh, in the defense of cheese whiz, it's actually more <laughs> of a orange corn product than it is a cheese product. <laughs> yeah. This is the defense, is it? Uh, it's, it's according to the Corn Marketing Board, which uh, both I and uh, Democratic candidates... Uh, uh, stumping in the Midwest are, are still enthralled to. Right. Uh, so. Well, far be it from me to to, uh, to resist the siren call of Iowa. Yes. Um, cheese whiz is fine. Um, it is, uh, if you don't have any peanut butter, it is certainly a thing to put on celery that will make celery palatable. Good for you. Um, for me, the, the, the cheese thing that I love the best is uh, the good old blue box, the good old Kraft macaroni and cheese. The single greatest thing that has ever been uh, created to allow bachelors not to die. Yes. <laughs> Nurse generations of uh, college students. Exactly. Um, it's wonderful. It um, is just enough cooking to make you feel like you've accomplished something, but not enough cooking to be uh, hard in any way whatsoever. Uh, it is uh, very delicious because of the aforementioned fat, salt, and sugar uh, componentry. It's bright orange. Can't rule that out. So it's very attractive um, and you can blend it with anything else you have in a can. So do you have a can of chili? Now you have chili Mac. Do you have a can of mushrooms? Now you have mushroom Mac, whatever it is you like, you can put it in your macaroni and cheese, your, your craft. And now you have delicious Mac and that, and that's delicious. Yes. You, you can even class that up. So I'm not even sure if that's shameful enough. To be on our list, but it's certainly well, it's pretty shameful, classic Robin. processed food. Yeah. Um, before we move out of the cheese-related uh, category, notice that I say cheese-related. I mean, cheese cheese. I mean, if we're talking about cheeses, by the way, Kraft singles are great because they melt, and that is a good thing. A lot of cheeses get fancy, and then they uh, they melt either weirdly or they or they don't melt or they get super runny. Kraft singles melt like plastic because, in fairness, that's probably what they are. But. <laughs> But what that means is if you are making a fast grilled cheese or a fast cheeseburger or a fast anything, and you just need to know, will this orange thing melt and be vaguely cheese-like, Kraft Singles have got your back. It, so, yes. and, and the Kraft cheese item that I would recommend it for two purposes only is Velveeta cheese. Do you have Velveeta cheese down there? Yeah, we do. I mean, yeah. I don't personally, but yes, America yes. proudly America has Velveeta cheese. Of course it does. How can you ask that? Because uh, sometimes <laughs> there's weird... It's like asking if we have gunplay or freedom. <laughs> there's, there's weird uh, processed foods that only Canadians have. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm not sure if we'll get to them. You'll tell me if I name one. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but anyway, the, the Velveeta, purpose of Velveeta is only to go on top of a slice of apple pie or rhubarb pie and otherwise... I, I would not uh, truck with it. All right. You are literally insane there. 
I mean, actual cheddar is lovely on apple pie. If you have actual, I mean, I'm not saying velvet is not nice on apple pie because it's oh, apple see, pie. See, Ken, you're, you're now irresistibly, you're lured to talking about good food. Yeah, right. Well, so, here's the so, thing about Velveeta, so though. With your what, I thought you were, what I thought you were going to say is Velveeta is to make nachos with, which is absolutely true. It's not what I would use to put nachos. But again, I'm about to talk about good food. Ken, right. what's your next bad food? My next bad food. Okay. Um, moving out of the cheesed area, I guess, into the next. Um, can, can we talk about just general fast food as a entire topic because all of it is is processed and, and we love it or is that a, a different I, I think category? you're gonna have to uh, name particular uh, items I have one of my no, I'm, I'm gonna name the item don't 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 worry this is a this the is a time of clearly within the remit re- within the remit of our hut we're not gonna yes. have that as a separate thing I'm gonna stake my whatever it is you stake that you're embarrassed about and tiptoe away from so the opposite of a claim to uh, the Taco Bell uh, burrito supreme which is, I think, uh, not just your sugar, not just your salt, not just your fat, but also I think it may or may not have just a little of your good old crack cocaine in it. <laughs> that would explain the edibility of it. That would explain. But I got to tell you, there was a time when we, uh, our uh, game was held at a friend's apartment who was right near a Taco Bell. So it made super good sense geographically only to rally at the Taco Bell before going into his apartment to play the game. And if you're rallying at a Taco Bell anyway, you might as well eat at the Taco Bell. And I don't, maybe I became addicted at that point. Maybe it was just always a weakness within me. Uh, as, as a Presbyterian, I would have to believe that, that there's some sort of original sin going on. But I got to tell you, from that point to now, you can at any point say to me, hey, Ken, let's go to Taco Bell. And I will say, oh, I'm going to get me a Burrito Supreme. And that that'll end it. I'll do it. Because it's magical. Uh, for me, the the uh, platonic, uh, not really good or good for you, but still delicious fast food chain item would be the Burger King chicken sandwich, mm. uh, the breaded chicken sandwich, uh, which uh, I guess I also have a uh, memory of where I imprinted out of habit uh, after we would go to uh, rehearsal for theater in high school. We'd get in the drive-thru and go to Burger King, and that would be my order, so... Uh, I guess there's also the, the, uh, we're examining how camaraderie and circumstance and hunger all combine to make something even more delicious uh, than you uh, right. want it to be. Um, for a while, uh, the uh, Burger King chicken sandwich was my uh, uh, film festival uh, indulgence because there used to be a Burger King in one of the main venues, but they've replaced it with their own different uh, source of food, which no longer has the... Uh, platonic perfection for me of the right. uh, Burger King chicken sandwich. Uh, another segue that uh, we could have uh, done when you were talking about uh, macaroni and cheese, and I think, based on having put a photograph on this line and, and uh, online and just seen uh, ripples of shock and horror, uh, I think Canada is the only place you can get macaroni and cheese loaf, which is a... <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> which is a bologna-like proce- uh, unidentified processed meat product that has uh, both uh, bits of macaroni uh, and pockets of processed cheese in it. Uh, and then you slice them so you see them in, in profile, the little curlicues of macaroni and little uh, dots of cheese. And I was so tired after Tiff this year that I almost purchased a package of it and brought it home to eat. This was something, again, we, we had uh, in the house when, uh, uh, when we were kids, uh, the a product of a prior generation, which was perhaps less discriminating about processed foods. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
It's not something that I would take any action to eat today. But boy, if I was at a potluck or like, uh, you know, family gathering or something and there was sandwiches with those in it, I might be tempted to to uh, reach out for those. Um, I wish I could say that was only Canada, but according to the Internet, you can buy it at uh, Walmart that they have a brand called Kogel's Macaroni and Cheese Loaf. And uh, there we are. So well, if you buy you it go, at Walmart, it must all, be American. You're now, everybody who was, who was shocked and horrified by it, you're obligated to go and, and buy a package and try it, just like the person touching the ooze with a stick in the previous right. segment. Now, I, I ate a lot of bologna sandwiches when I was a kid, but it did not, in fact, inculcate me a love of bologna. I don't like any of the cheap deli meats. I, I don't like the bologna. I don't like any of it. It's all bad. But I will say... That in the world of awful meats, any of your steakums or steakums like products, I cannot have them in the freezer because I would literally just eat them. I mean, it would be a thing where if I had steakums, I would be eating them certainly tonight after Sheila had gone to bed, but possibly during this podcast um, because they are uh, they are terrific. Yes. I've only named one thing that's actually in my house. <laughs> yeah. The rest I'm all too smart to, to mess with. Right. But the but but the steakums are amazing. I mean they're they're basically little tiny thin sliced steaks. Uh and I use the term steak probably advisedly. They're cow adjacent. Yeah. Um you, you can you can um make uh steak sandwiches with them if you don't want to cut uh steak yourself and don't mind eating whatever it is actually made of. Um and you can just heat them up and eat them basically right out of the pan if you're a monster or me, um, you can have them uh, as a steak sandwich type item. Again, I hesitate to use the word steak, but any of those steakums or steakums like creations are just super delicious. Yes. And they are so good that I, I can't own them because it would just be a sadness. Well, the name is steak. Um, um, yeah. I, I mean, spam I could take or leave. If I owned Spam, I would not be eating it all the time. And I've had good Spam, and you've had good Spam, in fact, uh, just the other day at that uh, tiki place in uh, Indianapolis. And and so there's there's a n- sort of a... It, it, it is ennobled when, t- uh, when it goes Hawaiian. Right, yeah. There's a very thin road from Spam to delicious Pacific Island cuisine. Um, spam itself is terrible, but I have, I have eaten spam with, with, uh, maybe not joy, but with gladness, um, in my day, but steakums are the, in the world of processed meats, steakums are the, uh, the beautiful alluring devil that, uh, I may, I may never approach. They're the very much the, um, uh, la belle dame at sans, uh, sans mercy going on. Well, I mentioned uh, sugar at, at the top is one of the trekker, but we haven't gotten into the, uh, the, the sweet realm yet. And we're running out of time, but I, I will uh, throw in now the spread that cannot be in my house. I haven't had for years, and with good reason, because I would eat it if it was here. And that's fluff, the oh. marshmallow spread uh, that, uh, when uh, combined with peanut butter on a sandwich, is uh, a perfect kid eating and would cause me to re- uh, revert to childhood uh, were I to go near it. Now, sometimes you might be tempted to have it in the house as... An ice cream topping, uh, you could sort of melt it and turn it into uh, yeah. the topping of a sundae. Yeah, it's great on ice cream. But then if you do that, you will also wind up having fluffernutter sandwiches. And that way, madness lies, my friends. Yeah, no, um, I'm on your side in all senses with that fluff situation. You can't be owning fluff. Fluff is for 
Fluff is for the bolder, uh, brasher people yes. who can live on the edge. Um, I, in, in terms of, I don't know how terrible it is. It's probably pretty terrible, but any of those like flavored cream cheeses and not the nice flavors where it's like, <laughs> oh, it's savory, flavored but, cream but like, but like the strawberry cream cheese. Have you ever seen that? Do they have that in Canada? Yes, and they do. Yeah. You would think, well, how, how hard is it to not buy strawberry cream cheese? It's a struggle every time because basically then you're just, you're just putting sort of slightly tangy ice cream on your, on your bagel and. I shouldn't be putting cream cheese on a bagel. First of all, let's leave that whole question of dietary restrictions out. But definitely candy cream cheese is just a it's just an in, invitation to murder yourself. And and it's out there, Robin. It exists. Uh, yes. And I'm, I'm sure there's even worse flavors than uh, than strawberry. Yeah. I mean, I, I God forbid I should go and look in a in the actual deli case at some point or the actual there cream might be cheese a blueberry case. one, Ken, singing oh, your name. Oh, no, Robin. You can't say these things. That's <laughs> awful. Who would who would come up with that? Oh man. Well, uh, all this talk of uh, of food that I shouldn't be eating has made me uh, quite hungry. Uh, yes, starving. And, but we've got another segment to do, so let's get to that, so I can go and rummage through the cupboards and see if I've accidentally left some fluff in there, despite my bravado. Enjoy a little cheese whiz and fluff, possibly on a slab of Velveeta. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. And our final hut, the most mysterious of huts, uh, one with ill-defined boundaries. Let's look at the window. Oh, look, there's an alien big cat screaming on the moor. And oh, in the corner, I think I know where we are now because there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien. Uh, they are uh, drinking their kombucha and they're dissing the reptoids as is their wont because we have entered the Elliptony Hut at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Gerald Sears, who asks, what sort of elliptonic or mystical workings could John Humphrey Noyes have gotten up to with his silverware company and associated communes? So, Ken, this takes us back to, uh, once again, to 19th century America, to uh, the uh, I think t into the burned over district, I believe. Oh yeah, absolutely. Very much so. And so, uh, noise was a, uh, it, it says on Wikipedia preacher. It never says cult leader, but <laughs> as we're going to get through his story, we're going to see a number of the old red flags of the cult leader and, uh, also a utopian socialist. But I think most utopian socialists would look at that and go, 
That's neither socialist nor utopian. Well, I mean, it's sort of socialism. I mean, it's people can agree or disagree as to how utopian it is. If everybody working for your spiritual leader's uh, silverware company is socialism, then. Well, no, it began as a co-op, right? Right. It's just it's as socialist as a Berkeley grocery store, my friend. Uh, Well, let's uh, let's put a pin in that. (laughs) So uh, in 1833, he's in Yale Divinity School and uh, his revelation comes not through seeing angels or uh, you know, a, a, a confrontation with a saint in his dreams, but uh, he does some math and he's uh, he's calculating the date of the second coming as one does. Uh, but then he realizes that the second coming has already happened in 70 AD, uh, not long after the first coming. And that changes everything. Uh, the next year he declares himself perfect and without sin, uh, meaning that he has no obligation to obey laws or moral standards. So he's like Twitter. Yes. <laughs> or like a cult leader. Um, yeah. So uh, his uh, most famous doctrine, aside from let's all to get together and make crafts and silverware, is uh, complex marriage. Uh, and can uh, I don't know what simple marriage is. Uh, <laughs> what, what was uh, complex marriage? Well, complex marriage is a system by which everyone is living communally, and they are allowed to engage in some sexual activity, not the bad kind, where you can have babies, but the good kind, where you don't have babies. Because uh, that's just shaking hands, only naked. <laughs> and uh, no one raises any of the babies as their own, and no one has exclusive rights to anyone. So it's sort of a polyamorous group home, I guess. Uh, and, uh, the complexity of it, I suppose involves the fact that you're doing it with people, not with ants <laughs> and, uh, that everyone starts getting head up about it one way or the other. Right. And your spiritual leader gets to decide who gets together and when not, not at all a controlling cult leader thing at all, but it's a preacher thing. Right. But but by an odd coincidence, older men like, say, John Humphrey Noyes get to sleep with young women. Oh, wait, that's, that's not odd. another red flag of the cult the, leader, is it? That God would say that all <laughs> the time that he says that to people. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's t- weird. totally unfamiliar to me from yeah. all other cult leaders. Um, but at any rate, uh, he uh, sets up one commune in Putney in 1844 and then another one shortly thereafter in Oneida, which is the famous one. And by shortly thereafter, you mean after the sheriff starts showing up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, occasionally you, there's pursuit and then, you know, you set up somewhere else. Uh-huh. Uh, also, you know, an unknown in the annals of cult leadership. And so at Oneida, which lasts until 1881, uh, they focus on a bunch of different uh, crafts, including silverware production. And that's what they're... Uh, uh, famous for. And the story of Noyes uh, takes takes another turn, uh, speaking of cult leaders, uh, when in 1879, he has to uh, flee when he's tipped off by a believer that a statutory rape charge is coming his way. And so uh, he heads to Ontario, where inexplicably, uh, we let him hang around. Uh, and he dies in Niagara Falls in 1886. And his son turns the commune into a joint stock company uh, and concentrates on silverware. So that's the the story we know. Uh, that's the uh, that might be sort of elliptonic level weirdness. I don't know. Uh, but how do we make it uh, more elliptonic? What is the what is the true that is made up uh, story of uh, John Humphrey Noyes? Well, I mean, 
first of all, I, you know, pay a great deal of attention to this notion that the second coming happened in 70 AD. I'm a big fan of that because the notion that there's a secret second coming that happened and we're all living in the post millennial era is You'd pretty think we great. Been notified. Well, I mean, I guess John Humphrey Noyes notified us. I guess he did. And I do want to point out that in 1947, um, as the Oneida Silverware Company is ramping up to uh, sell silverware to all these new GI Bill brides um, uh, that are getting married as their menfolk have come home from defeating fascism, um, that they realized that they didn't want anything about John Humphrey Noyes to get out. And so they burned all of the records that the Oneida commune had had in a, a whole walk-in safe. I believe Kellogg's has uh, had some similar scrubbing. <laughs> right, yeah. But, but the notion that in 1947, they're burning all the records of the Oneida commune is... Uh, significant because if maybe it's not the desire to sell silverware that's causing it, it's the fall of the Roswell uh, object and something else is happening. You know, we've got three wise men coming from the stars and a new nativity has begun because the other cool thing that they legitimately got up to was, was called stirpiculture, Robin. And I know that you are saying stirpiculture. Stirpiculture, that's, that's when you grow stirps. Exactly. But the stirps are specifically the Latin root for stock or stem. And so you are improving the human stock by creating religious eugenics. So men and women who are selected for their godliness are selected to raise children. And the Oneida community raised something like 58 stirpiculture children between 1869 and 1879. So we have, I don't mean to startle you, Robin, but potential messiahs wandering around because they are, they have been created in this uh, very complex marriage. And uh, by dint of much prayer and guidance, I'm sure. So we've got 58 weird little messiahs. So it's sort of your omen Damien type thing going on. Uh, but the, uh, second coming's already happened. So they're, they're free from sin. So they're just wandering around. Uh, all of them apparently lived longer than average, uh, lifespan. Only one of them had any sort of physical, uh, uh, disability or, or, uh, anything like that. So you've got some, you've got some creepy, at the very least, some creepy Doc Savage type stuff happening. Right. And at the and best, it's, it's not too far a leap to think that the stirps perhaps uh, got it on together and made more baby stirps. Made super stirps. Right. Exactly. That you're getting down to the lensman at this point. And, uh, so maybe that's what's happening in 1947 is the, the, the aliens have sent their three wise men to find the, the newly born, uh, great grand stirp, um, who was born in Roswell or wherever he might have been born, because of course the stirps disappeared into the community and then in, they burn all the records. So we don't know who they are. And so there we go. I think that there is a great deal of perfect shell for extraterrestrialism being grown there. Um, at the very least for communication with outer realms. Uh, and we got, uh, all manner of trouble going on. And the fact that, 1879 or that, that period of stirping is when they begin their silverware. So in 1877 is when they begin making silverware. So there's some possibly alchemical moon child type action going on. And in the course of doing all that, they've learned, Oh, right. We have figured out this cool silver plating method. Let's just make forks. And so I, I guess it's not too big a leap to assume that the, uh, the Roswell object was actually uh, uh, silver plated. 
right? Uh, we know it was shiny. We know yeah, it we looked know it like uh, metal foil. Maybe it was silver foil. So the uh, next question then, I guess, is why it crashed. Who? What uh, alternate force was there uh, with a, a 1947 uh, vintage bazooka to knock that out of the sky and prevent the ascension of the stirp? And what uh, what sort of secret war is going on as a result? And uh, and who the uh, whether it was the uh, Air Force itself uh, or uh, some other organization was uh, responsible for making sure that that uh, that rendezvous and the third coming uh, did not actually occur. Um, I, I, I think that there's, you know, any number of possibilities. It could be uh, either one of the other uh, evil forces that was uh, liberated in the um, uh, burned over district, or it could be a good force. Possibly it could have been electrical Jesus shooting it down. If you remember John Murray Spears is, is around this era at the same time. Uh, it could have been any number of things. Um it, it could have been, uh, I'd like to think that it was, you know, some bold, uh, uh, general Jack D Ripper type, um, that he recognizes that the Sturps are bringing post millennial socialism, uh, out into the world. And he's trying to stop the aliens from bringing it to earth. It's sort of like anti-Posadists. Right. Right. Well, that, that, the, that the, would the explain the concern from, with precious bodily fluids. That's for sure. Right. The, the, they're, they're from the, they're from the, uh, uh, the gay space dolphin, uh, communists and they, and they send their, their missing, their messengers down and, and our, our heroic individualist, uh, in the air force shoots them down. I think it was general twining did it. And you can make sure that, uh, that uh, the stirps continue on to our present day. If you want to keep that continuity going so they could show up as, uh, you know, your third season, new antagonists in a moon dust man campaign. And, uh, they could certainly be, uh, uh, a faction in uh, unknown armies and uh, anything where, and, and of course in uh, fall of Delta green, uh, the stirps uh, look at uh, noise and look at his playbook. And uh, perhaps uh, since they've been thwarted in bringing about the third coming, well, uh, they know uh, how to run a cult that they, they didn't burn those records after all, right. They just set a fire and left with the records. And so uh, you could easily have, a uh, a sixties uh, utopian socialist uh, mystical commune that is uh, straight out of his playbook, and you can uh, tell that by the fact that uh, uh, they're uh, setting up uh, perhaps silverware is a little too much like the man, but uh, the original uh, commune also did like uh, leather working and stuff, and that's uh, definitely in the the sixties like vibe. Bags so and you could have your yeah. Delta Green agents uh, uh, confront uh, uh, the Sturps then, or or now after the new age movement sort of transforms the uh, once again, the outer uh, surface of uh, structurally, what is that same thing that recurs from generation to generation? Yeah. I do want to just briefly mention that John Humphrey noise had no problem with Darwin. He thought Darwin was the, 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 the bee's knees, very clever guy, but he said, Darwin, I know you're all up about the ape thing, but we're neglecting the other intelligent hominid race we know existed in the early times, the serpents, the guys that walk around and talk in the Garden of Eden. What if man is descended from snake people? So maybe the stirps are also got reptoid in them. Yeah, reptoid or uh, serpent people, serpent folk, if you're doing yeah, uh, right. Delta Green. Well, I mean, six of one half dozen of the exactly. other, right? I mean, the serpent people probably built spacecraft and flew off and settled other planets to become the reptoids. Uh, and then um, the last uh, thing I guess we can mention is that although John Humphrey Noyes had always opposed spiritualism, feeling that you were talking to damned souls in hell, uh, not to proper uh, good people, um, 
1878, right before uh, the end of the stirpiculture experiment, he did uh, allow his son Theodore to conduct seances. And so maybe there's some sort of demonry in, involved in the stirps as well. And that it was that final touch to make the, the silverware ever so glossy and to make the stirps ever so shiny and Damien-like. So you can even have a good stirp versus bad stirp that the first stirps are, are just sort of perfectly godly people, but then they get more reptoid DNA or serpent people DNA. And then finally, the last touch is that they get a demon brought up right. from, from hell. Well, and they begin to take that whole, we're not bound by any law or, or morality thing. <laughs> yeah. but, what, once you, once you internalize that, all sorts of stuff can happen. Right. Well, I, in fact, the make up level of this was, was less than I thought, Ken. Yeah. No, it did practically none because again, cult leader, yes. as you, I believe you mentioned at the very beginning of this. Right on. Uh, well, I think it's time for me to, uh, uh, go uh, get my silverware and uh, and perhaps uh, use it to cut up some cheese whiz toast. So Ken, it's time for us to uh, to to flee uh, all of these. This has been a three hut or four hut even uh, segments. So we'll be back with uh, more huts and perhaps other segments a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast from tarnishing in the silverware drawer by emulating beloved Patreon backers. Andrew Collins. Steve K. Dan Simons. Neil Dalton. And Neil Kaplan. Festoon yourself with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new ultra on-brand design, Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>